The following program contains language not suitable for all ages. Discretion advised. You know, the problem with you kids is you think everything's so easy. Go on TikTok enjoying your lives while millennials are busy eating cartel avocados and getting blamed for coronavirus somehow. How is it our fault? We, we've been here the same amount of time as anybody else. There's so much content out for you guys to enjoy. It's hard to feel like it even matters sometimes. Watching anime is so easy now that there's YouTube series about anime, music about anime, there's anime about anime. And it's hard to imagine the days when you had to acquiesce to an actual TV schedule just to watch Dragon Ball Z. I am the once again. But those days definitely happened. And regardless of shifts in technology, we might not have access to our favorite shonen and shoujo in quite the same way without the dedicated fans who really pushed the industry forward in that way. So in our first episode, we'll be breaking down exactly how those fans took their one unmarketable passion and shoved it down everybody else's throat until we got to where we are today. This is Anime in America, brought to you by Crunchyroll and hosted by me, Yadoye Travis. I was just starting high school at the time and there were a group of upperclassmen that were starting an anime club and they had a couple of these these weird videotapes that I knew were not legal but seemed to be uh, subtitled kind of uh, on the DL by, by fans and just passed around, you know, they, they were copies of copies of copies so they were pretty blurry but they were stuff you just couldn't get anywhere and I later had it explained to me that they were fan subs and they were made by fans for fans. That is Justin Savakis, founder of Anime News Network, CEO of Media OCD, which is a hard thing to say, and a former fan subber, a member of a group called Kodocha, named after Justin's own maiden voyage into the world of fan subbing, the 1996 anime rom-com Kodomo no Omocha, or Child's Toy in English. So what exactly is fan subbing? Uh, well, it's very complicated unless you work at computers or something like that. For those of us with regular jobs, fan subbing is a portmanteau of fan and subtitle, and hopefully it's very simple to figure out from there, but I don't know. But anyway, it's a practice of fans independently getting their hands on a piece of foreign language media, translating it, and subtitling it, usually to share with others who don't speak the original language. It's also illegal, and despite whatever information you have on illegal things, uh, the people who make the original work really, really, really don't like it. So why would supposedly passionate fans of a form of media modify it without the creator's permission and distribute bootleg copies of it, essentially committing media piracy? Well, a lot of the reasons uh, boil down to the fact that you just couldn't get it anywhere else. Anime in the late 80s and early 90s was pretty scarce. It was still unproven in the American market and all over the world, but that's another podcast. So it was being licensed by only a select few small and kind of shady companies, which we'll get into later. And they were very selective about what they would invest in. And on top of that, a lot of anime distributors were very confused why a country like America would even be interested in their work, which is an obstacle that would take years of negotiations and increasing international VHS and DVD sales to overcome. And it still persists on some level even now. In the end, it was just a textbook case of demand outstripping the supply, so much so that fans went through all this trouble despite fan subbing being, as we'll soon learn, a very big pain in the ass.
In the early 90s, the technology for burning subtitles onto a VHS or Laserdisc was prohibitively expensive, so most fansubbing groups rose out of college anime clubs because universities at the time had the highest concentration of both anime fans and expensive and incredibly specific technology. In order to make a fan sub, you had to have a device called a Genlock, which actually would pass the video signal through the computer and overlay graphics on top of it. It would like key out one of the 16 colors that the computer was displaying and you know that, that would be replaced with whatever the video signal was under it. If you didn't have convenient access to a Commodore Amiga and a Genlock, the two would put you back somewhere to the tune of $3,000, the equivalent of about $5,529. So it was a very difficult hobby to get into unless you worked in the audiovisual industry were attending a well-funded college, or just had fuck you money and a lot of free time. Which not many people had. Fortunately, the software was free. The industry standard was called Jocko Sub, and obviously Jocko stands for Japanese Animation Club of Orlando. That's obvious. Duh. Because it was developed by anime fans for the specific purpose of fan-subbing anime. Because who would have thought that nerds also know their way around computers? Now, assuming you could get your hands on the hardware and that obscure bit of software, you still needed to get your hands on the anime itself and usually somebody willing to translate it for you. The groups that distributed the fan subs weren't necessarily the same people translating them and sourcing the anime itself was its own struggle. So a lot of groups just made copies from hobbyists who translated the anime and either had connections in Japan, maybe a member of the U.S. military stationed in Japan who taped the anime as it appeared on television, or if you wanted the high quality stuff, they ordered official laser discs from services like CD Japan, personally swallowing the cost of $80 per disc, plus expensive international shipping before sending it downstream. From there, the group would burn the subtitles onto the video using the aforementioned equipment and using Jocko Sub, one poor lost soul would timestamp each line individually by just hitting the space bar every time a character started talking. That whole process created the master copy, which would go into a VCR that networked to a daisy chain of VHS decks that would copy the subtitled anime en masse for distribution, which is a lot. So how did your average anime fan get their hands on one of those bootleg tapes? Well, you would send a letter, uh, which I guess if you don't know what a letter is, a letter is kind of like an email that you would send to your wife during wartime, and it could take days or even weeks to arrive and this is not important but your wife would ultimately reveal that she had found a new lover but i digress before the internet became widely available anime piracy existed entirely in person or through the u.s postal service there were two popular methods for requesting videos one was mailing in a handwritten letter to a fan group's p.o box with your requested series along with a money order to the tune of six dollars per vhs at four episodes per tape which when you do the math is um how, I don't even, how much is that? You, you guys have calculators. You can do it. As good a deal as that sounds for distributors, that $6 really only covered the cost of the tape itself and return postage. Ultimately, they were kind of doing it for themselves, and distribution duty just came by virtue of being the only ones with access. Alternatively, you could mail in your own VHS tape via a self-addressed stamped envelope to cover the cost of the media and postage, but a lot of groups weren't really fans of that method. Because it sucked. It sucked a lot. Those were a nightmare because people would send in cheap and used tapes that would gum up the VCRs. They would eat the tapes. 
if tapes got mixed up, uh, it would it was just a disaster. Uh, there would be backlogs because you couldn't run them in tandem. You could you'd have to run off each copy one at a time. Despite the obstacles, some of these groups developed sophisticated distribution networks, even stockpiling popular series like Escaflone in anticipation of multiple orders. But even with all these organized efforts, there were so few people in the industry in such high demand that fulfilling orders sometimes took up to a year. Because you, you could just do that. Imagine mailing out a nicely written letter along with $6 per tape and waiting a fucking year for one show to come in the mail. One show. As time went on, fan subbing networks continued to grow more sophisticated, connecting with cheap wholesale distributors to lighten their load, copying tapes, and even finding unique branding opportunities. Kodocha tapes were, were well known because um, I, I was in Detroit at the time and not too far from us was a custom tape manufacturer that would custom spool VHS tapes for us, really high quality stuff. And they would do a foil stamp of our logo on the shutter of the tape. Also, they had a, a canceled order of these purple tapes that were supposed to be used for Barney and Friends. And so they were purple and we're just like, actually, these are really durable. We'll take them. And that became known as the purple Barney tapes. And that became synonymous with, with Kodocha anime. All of this still took a lot of time. One group could be working on several anime at once, and the process took a few hours per episode, and that's assuming they already had a translation ready. Combine that with the release schedule of most of the anime they were working on, and you're looking at a part-time job running projects that take literal years to complete. It's one of those things that makes you think that maybe anime wasn't worth it. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe we fucked up. I don't know. The craziest thing is that this growing network run by passionate fans turned amateur translators, AV techs, and distributors operated essentially on word of mouth. Most fan subbers got into the industry through high school or college anime clubs, and their, uh, technically, I guess you can call them customers, were friends and then friends of friends, or friends of friends of friends. You, got, you just had to know a guy who knew a guy. That's kind of how it works. Then, like most things, the internet changed that by a lot. In the late 90s, web rings, which are groups of websites that mutually link to one another before Google uh, started collecting all of our personal information, uh, began to form, which changed the game when it came to visibility. Where before you could only look for rare anime publications or go by word of mouth to discover new shows, it became a lot easier to just find fan sites with a ton of recommendations, and it usually wasn't much harder to find someone who could get those anime to you. Between those and mailing lists, soon requesting your VHS anime became a digital affair, and anime communities started to grow around these sources of illicit videos. Maybe illicit isn't the right word. I guess technically some are illicit. I don't know. But I think illegal maybe is the word I'm looking for. But that is not the point. As the internet became a greater part of the fan subbing scene, pretty much exactly what you think would happen happened. There was a lot of drama. This was a unique period in fan sub history where the complexity of distribution and fan communities was becoming decentralized, but lone anonymous individuals could still have a huge impact on the community. And one of these people was Karen, who is sole operator of a fan subbing group called Tomodachi Anime, and perhaps the person who single-handedly popularized shoujo anime in America. For the uninitiated, shoujo is a Japanese word that literally translates to girl, specifically young women, usually between the ages of 7 and 18. It's also the term for that targeted demographic in manga and anime marketing speak. 
unfortunately they're not that creative on the uh, on the marketing side i'm sorry i don't know what to tell you in the mid 90s anime was starting to gain traction in the u.s but almost exclusively the shonen or young boy and seinen or older male variety to say anime's audience of young women was underserved during this period and still kind of now is a huge understatement and before the shoujo audience was being served by literally anyone in the u.s Tomodachi made a name for itself with Marmalade Boy, a romantic comedy based on a manga in Sueisha's Ribbon magazine. It follows the budding love between Miki Koishikawa and Yu Matsura, two high school students whose parents, each unhappy with their marriages, agree to swap spouses. Which maybe sounds familiar. There's a show called Wife Swap in America. Okay. The comedy-heavy series had huge crossover appeal among the fansub audience, while another shoujo manga turned anime titled Fushigi Yugi may have been the first true isekai mega-hit. And if you don't know, isekai is another Japanese term that translates literally to another world, and it's become one of the leading genres in anime, second only to shonen anime like Dragon Ball Z, My Hero Academia, and Naruto. In the present day, it serves as a genre for escapism or male power fantasy for its predominantly male audience, but its origins, like Fushigi Yugi, have much more sophisticated roots in stories written by and for women, marking important coming-of-age moments, or serving as allegory for or escapism from the extremely restrictive roles women are expected to play in Japanese society. Anyway, Fushigi Yugi blew up. The show had a rabid following, but Karen was what you might call an auteur fan subber who personally sat down with her translator to discuss lines and used a variety of subtitle fonts made possible by recent advances in subtitling technology. And they maybe looked nice, but a lot of fans complained that they were hard to read. It's a reasonable complaint, but in the surrounding drama, another group picked up Karen's translations and made their own copies in a more standardized font, but... Karen was upset that her work was being changed without her permission, and her objections turned into a massive discourse about creative ownership over uh, stolen property. So you can see how it was complicated. This would ultimately lead to Karen retiring from the scene entirely. Just imagine how terrible you have to be as a fandom to not only force the one woman out of the job of fan subbing, but to push women out of a genre entirely. How do they even do that? It just seems hard. Technology continued to improve like it does, and a freeware application called Substation Alpha, the precursor to the software Aegis Sub that's still used to this day by fan subbers, became available and hugely simplified the process of subtitling anime. But these new powerful computers could not only edit better than the old Genlock systems, they could also produce videos in an entirely different format, digital files that were roughly the same quality as VHS tapes. The transition from analog to digital marked a huge shift in fan subbing. As noted, practitioners had been early adopters of the internet, participating in anime-focused web rings and mailing lists to coordinate distribution, but once internet speeds and computer technology advanced to the point where anime could be distributed entirely online, things changed a lot because the medium of VHS was inexorably linked to the fan subber's code of honor. Oh, 
Uh, yeah, the code of honor. So the number one thing was that this was by fans and for fans. So nobody was supposed to make a profit off of these. That was first and foremost. Fan subs were meant to supplement what was available legally. They were not meant to replace what was available legally. And everyone was supposed to support, ideally, everyone who had the fan subs, if a show came out commercially, they were supposed to delete their fan subs, record over them, or trash the tapes or whatever, and buy the legal copies. Some people did that. Some people didn't. And to be honest, the commercial subtitled releases weren't really that much better in that era. Uh, in fact, some of them were demonstrably worse. So uh, I don't know how often that happened, but people worked really hard not to make a profit uh, at that point, which, you know, it's really easy to not make a profit in the anime business anyway. So <laughs> that that was number one. Number two was to do everything you could to keep these tapes out of the hands of people that did sell them for profit. And there was a huge problem back then with what we called gray area fan subbers. And these were known as uh, like the, the worst one was known as S. Baldrick. Uh, and he went by a couple other names. And these were fan subs that were basically meant to be copied and sold at conventions. Uh, you know, comic cons often had this one creepy guy with a booth with a bunch of tapes and clamshell cases with really badly colored Xerox labels. And so we would actually, you know, put on the video, buy fans for fans, not for sale or rent. Uh, and, you know, we did whatever else we could without, you know, screwing up the video too much because, you know, there's no way to ultimately there was nothing we could do if someone wanted to sell one of these for profit, except we'd try very hard not to let them get our, our tapes. By the end of the VHS area, even turning zero profit and often losing money on these ventures, a lot of fan subbing groups were already becoming uncomfortable with the scale of their distribution, but they held on to one fact about the medium they worked with. But digital fan subbing was a whole nother ball of wax. And a lot of that, that's when we lost a lot of VHS era fan subbers. A lot of them just bowed out right then and there. Every time they copied a fan sub, it degraded the quality of the product. Really, every time you watched a VHS tape, it would degrade the recording. The products they were making wouldn't last very long, which gave sort of an ephemeral quality to the work they were producing. But that fact started to break down in the digital era. Video files could withstand the test of time, which you may know if you've ever posted anything on the internet, and they were more easily duplicated and impossible to keep out of the hands of bad actors. Once a fan sub was in circulation, not even its creators could stop it from being shared forever. Along with a shift in technology that maybe not a lot of the old guard wanted to adopt, most of the early fan subbers hung up their hats and basically disappeared as a new, younger, digisubber generation rose to replace them. Justin was among the many who stepped back, but later became one of the rare cases who returned to find legitimate work in the anime industry on some real catch-me-if-you-can shit. Taking the expertise he developed from his fan-subbing days, he now remasters classic anime with discotech, sometimes working officially on the same anime he was illegally fan-subbing over 20 years ago. Considering the size of the anime industry in the U.S. today, it's really surprising that so few people made it to the proper industry. Anime was booming in the early 2000s, and with it, a growing need for passionate translators, editors, and typesetters. And this is speculation, but it may have been because so many of them already had established careers. Fansubbing wasn't cheap and translating projects could last years, so maybe some of them took it as a sign to step back and join the rest of the fandom when they started to second-guess their hobby. Justin even speaks to a certain sense of intimacy in the fandom that was lost in this age. 
even though you might never meet someone in the flesh in the the distribution, you usually got a handwritten letter, usually got, you know, a hand, you had to get a hand filled out uh, money order. You know, people had to take the time to, you know, put a stamp on an envelope. Once it became, you know, something that you could request from a bot on IRC, that it was just, you know, you were just a number. It wasn't the same thing. Whether you liked it or not, IRC and Kazaa represented a golden age of accessibility for anime fans. But the added anonymity would bring with it a lot of new problems that would foreshadow what became known as the dark ages of fan subbing. The era of anime junkies. Emerging in the IRC era as a monolith that controlled a huge majority of the fan sub market, anime junkies was almost the singular group that most people looked to to get their fan subs. And that type of absolute power is destined to corrupt absolutely, as you have seen on t-shirts. As the biggest name in the fan subbing game, anime junkies were free to take a lot of liberties with every part of their process. They started tossing inside jokes and bizarre translator notes into their subtitles, and soon they started blurring out credits in anime openings and endings to include their own team handles and the individual fan subbing tasks they performed, which is kind of fucked up. Then they just started outright mistranslating dialogue, most notoriously rewriting a line in Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, describing recent kidnappings as, quote, mass naked child events. Maybe this is just me, but I personally would not want those words on my hands at all. Just saying them here uh, feels kind of fucked up. I don't know if I would add that to a thing that I was working on unnecessarily. But anyway, you remember the whole thing about uh, pulling anime once they were officially licensed? Um, well, most companies in the industry were aware of that practice, and one such distributor called Urban Vision wrote a very politely worded email to anime junkies claiming they'd acquired licenses to Ninja Scroll and asking them to stop hosting downloads of the anime because that's just kind of how the early 2000s anime industry worked. Anime junkies replied with the following. Uh, which I will do in my best uh, impression of them and what they sound like. Quote, Leave fan subs to fans or do it for free yourselves. All you're doing is getting rich off a series we helped make popular. Cool. Quote, Who the fuck are you anyways to buy a series we were doing? Seems like a lot. (laughs) Seems very intense. Another quote, You knew we were subbing, you know people fan sub, so why the fuck did you start a DVD company? Because people start companies? Um, And final quote, rot in hell. That one seems just unnecessary. Depending on where you stand in the debate on the ethics of fan subs, Those words may or may not resonate with you, but a lot of the community did not approve of that attack on Urban Vision, and just about anyone who interacted with anime junkies was kind of tired of their bullshit at this point. The straw that finally broke the camel's back came when they started ransoming episodes of anime, refusing to release them until arbitrary numbers of new IRC members were met. The increasing drama surrounding anime junkies eventually led to a new fracturing of fan-subbing groups as individuals with the means either splintered off from anime junkies or formed new groups entirely to compete with the infamous organization. That, along with even more decentralized hosting resulting from the rise of BitTorrent in 2003, meant it was even more difficult for one single group to control the content. Nowadays, a lot of the groups that rose from that fracture are still in operation, but despite the prevalence of pirated anime in the present, 
fan subbing itself has been on the decline ever since. The 2000s saw a lot of tension between fan communities and distributors as Dragon Ball Z and especially the Pokemon boom made anime seem profitable again. Anime licenses were getting bought up and fan subs were being made less out of necessity but either in response to low quality subs released by distributors or poor adherence to release schedules. Quite simply, fan subbers put anime out faster or at the very least they weren't replacing Sanji's cigarette with lollipops and all the surprising number of guns in Yu-Gi-Oh! with pointing fingers. There's a lot of guns in Yu-Gi-Oh! I, did you know that? I had no idea. Then in 2006 came Crunchyroll, which at the time was, uh, it was not what it is today. I will say that. It essentially served as an illegal anime YouTube, having hosted illegal fan subs for at least the first three years of its existence. That image started to dissolve when it received an investment of $4 million from a venture capital firm, and a year later, legitimate licenses to host anime, including Naruto, which marked Crunchyroll's transition into the AT&T-owned legitimate anime licensor and publisher it is today. Its big accomplishment was proving to Japanese licensors the importance of simulcasting anime and driving the entire industry, at least until about two years ago, toward closing the window between the Japanese release and the U.S. release of anime. Now, with anime streaming services putting out anime within an hour of the original Japanese airing time, and with the industry standards having shifted toward direct translation over localization, the need for fan subs had effectively dried up. Availability, speed, and quality had all outpaced fan subbers' private efforts, and only certain niche series or anime from platforms that push back release states still offer opportunities for fan subbers to provide any real service. Pirates continue their technological advancement to offer their own aggregator streaming sites, but these days most of them source their anime directly from the official licensor rather than from fan subbing sites, often leaving the services branded bumper untouched. So is it really illegal? Uh, yeah, yeah it is. So what is fan subbing good for anymore? Uh, I don't know. So back in the 80s, Suntory, the, the Japanese whiskey and beer company, they had a cute Sanrio-esque blue penguin mascot and uh they made somebody at some point I, I i wish i knew the full story of this decided hey let's make a movie of of the cute blue suntory penguin but wait a minute our audience is middle-aged guys so what do we do with this somebody made a movie with these little cute blue penguins and it is a deadly serious tale about the vietnam war and ptsd the first 20 minutes actually is like takes place during the vietnam war and the whole rest of the movie is like a badly shell-shocked soldier coming back and trying to readjust to american life except everyone is a little blue penguin. So the fact that this movie even exists is insane. I was looking at it, I'm like, God, can we, maybe Discotech can license this. So I, I passed it along to, to Selby at Discotech and he was just like, the owner of this is Suntory, the whiskey company? Who would I even talk to at a whiskey company? So what do you do with that? A fan sub group restored it. It's available online. Uh, somebody uploaded it to YouTube and now it lives again. There was no possible way that movie could have lived again in a legal way. The only fan subs I really take any interest in are the, is of the really, really obscure stuff. And you know, a lot of really old anime, 
Nobody even knows who owns them anymore. And even if a company like Discotech was to go in and try to license something, Discotech has been told quite regularly, we don't know who licensed that or who owns that. Sorry, we we can't help you. And so those shows are just in limbo forever. And unless somebody preserves them, they're just lost to the sands of time. I still have all the respect in the world for the fan subgroups that are preserving those shows because it's simply not going to happen any other way. There is no right way of, of fixing those because the, the right way of, of making those available just doesn't exist. So what are we supposed to do? Let, let them die? Let them fade away? That's not a good option. And the, I think those fan subs are in that old school spirit of, of nerds helping nerds. And uh, that's something I can get behind. The 80s was a tumultuous time in Japan with companies rising, falling, and restructuring daily. Even companies that survived mostly intact have completely lost track of who exactly owns the licenses to series they worked on. So these anime exist in a limbo where it's impossible to tell who, if anyone, owns the license and established contracts predate even the idea of streaming media. So basically nobody knows who owns them. Maybe nobody owns them anymore. I don't know. They exist in a void where there's no one to license them from, so they're just kind of fair game? Maybe? Or maybe not. If you're familiar with a similar controversy around emulation in gaming, there's an entire history that stands to be lost if no efforts are made to preserve the medium, and fracturing licenses can present a real obstacle toward that task. For these pieces in particular, there's nowhere to turn for an English, or sometimes even Japanese-speaking audience, except for unofficial sources. Legally, it's about as hairy as the subject can get, but at its heart, fan subbing has always been a labor of love. Passionate fans spending their valuable time and often their own money to make sure that others can enjoy the entertainment that's so meaningful to them. Their contributions to popularizing anime in the 80s and 90s is pretty undisputable, regardless of the legality, and for that, they deserve their due respect. The direct influence they had on anime's presence in this country drove the industry in a very clear way that could have never happened organically, especially if American distributors were left entirely unchecked over the years. It's hard to imagine what anime on Netflix would even look like if we continued to allow American producers to impose their own will on Japanese products without really knowing what they were working with. Which brings us to the subject of our next episode, why does everyone seem to hate Harmony Gold so much? presented by Crunchyroll. If you enjoyed this, please check out crunchyroll.com slash anime in America to watch the shows mentioned. Best part is you can do so for free with ads. Wow. Free anime. Special thanks to Justin Savakis from Disco Tech for sharing his stories. And you've heard it before, but please leave us a review and rate us so more people can discover the show or just share it with a friend. This episode is hosted by me, Yudoye Travis, and you can find me on social media at Professor Doye on Instagram and at YudoyeOT on Twitter. This episode was researched and written by Peter Phobian, edited by Chris Lightbody, and produced by me, Braith Miller, Peter Phobian, and Jesse Goldsberry. Thanks. Bye.